0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good morning, church. Yeah, I had a bit of a scare this morning driving in with all the snow. Um, For a moment, I thought I wasn't going to be able to get here on time, but uh, praise God, we made it. And uh, yeah, it's just great to be together as a church. And I was really reminded this morning that, you know, We are a church because we are the body of Christ. We are in Christ, not just because we meet on a Sunday morning. And um, it is so encouraging just to to be together and meet with God. So we are uh, continuing on our uh, journey in Genesis, so Gospel Foundations, as Pete said. And so we're actually going to go straight into the Scripture now and read our passage for today, which is Genesis Chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. So you can follow it with me on the screen. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bidelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Father, as we just look into your word now, I just pray that your spirit would be with us. That your spirit would reveal to us the truth in this scripture that we would understand more of you, that we would grow in our relationship with you, grow in intimacy with you. I pray that you would speak clearly to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. And uh, the question is this. What What would your answer be if someone were to ask you What is your purpose in life? What is man's purpose in life? Why do humans exist at all? I'm going to throw out a few things out there, some perspectives from from history that uh, certain people have have, uh, thought about and and come to the conclusion with. The first is uh, from a person called Epicurus. He lived in 300 BC. And in answering this question, he said, Of all the means to ensure happiness throughout life, by far the most important is the acquisition of friends. Voltaire, in the 18th century, who was a philosopher as well, he said, Pleasure is the object, duty, and goal of all rational creatures. So maximizing pleasure, that is the goal. The third person uh, is Yuval Noah Harari. So he's a contemporary historian from Israel. He wrote a book called Sapiens in 2011, and he said this, As far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. So we've got a, a viewpoint that is talking about pleasure being the goal, a viewpoint that is just acquiring friends. You know, that's, that's all there is to life. And then this last point, which is around, well, there is no purpose at all. But I think, you know, after the, the few weeks that we've been looking at Genesis, I think we can confidently say, you know, the Bible does not agree with any of those. In fact, uh, as we look at chapter 2, I believe that what we'll see here is, is actually that uh, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You might recognize that's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written in the 1600s, and essentially a a list of uh, doctrine, a a list of doctrine uh, from the Bible. And I would propose that this morning, that this is your purpose, my purpose, our purpose, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what we'll be discovering this morning. So after the, uh, uh, from the last few weeks, in, uh, in, in week one, just to recap a little bit, we looked at in the beginning, God, that God has existed before the creation of the world. Week two, we looked at God, the creator, that God created all things, the earth, the universe, the sky, everything that we can see. And in week three, last week, we saw that God has made us in his image. And today we're going to look at the garden as we just read, and we're going to look at how the garden shows us more about this purpose of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But first of all, you know, what is this garden? So first thing we can note is that uh, this passage in chapter 2 that I just read is is, is a literary flashback to day 6. So in chapter 1 we had days 1 to 6. And then just as we went into chapter 2, it was day 7 where God rested. But now we go back to day 6. It's basically a a little um, deep dive into what day 6 is all about. And the second thing we can see that in this passage is that the garden is a literal place. It's not like a metaphor. It is a a literal place that we can locate. In verse 8 it says, "...and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east." And immediately just from the name Eden, this Hebrew word connotates a sense of paradise, of delight, of pleasure, of luxury. And in fact, the Greek uh, translation for the word garden is paradesos, which is where we get our word paradise from. And God is intentional about creating a special place for man to live in that garden, it says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he intentionally placed his man in this garden. And every blessing that we can possibly imagine has been provided beyond our imagination. The plants and trees, you know, it says that the trees and the plants, they were pleasant to the sight and they were good for food. And you know, we can use that word pleasant, it's just like a throwaway one oh, you know it's quite pleasant. But when God says pleasant and good, it is perfect, that's what it really means. So we have the plants, the trees, we have animals, we have water, the sense of just um, lushness in the land that, that waters the garden. God has also given company to Adam, he creates Eve, and we'll, we'll discover more about that next week. He's also given mankind authority and responsibility and work and elements of his own character. Again, we heard last week that uh, man was made in the image of God. And John MacArthur, who's a a pastor in uh, in the U.S., he says this about the garden. This is another demonstration of God's great loving kindness toward his creation. The world as it existed already would have been a habitable paradise for Adam and Eve. Yet God went above and beyond to create a special paradise within a paradise for his favored creature. So, you you know, God could have said to, to Adam and Eve, you know, go just, I've created this beautiful world, it is perfect. Find wherever you want to live and just live there. But God was so intentional about creating this special paradise for them to live. So, uh, in preparation for uh, this talk today, I was just curious and uh, to to see on, on Google what would come up if I typed in the best garden in the world, just to kind of you know get a sense of that. So, um, you'll see it here. This is uh, one of the uh, well, one of the opinions. Obviously, you know, there's not consensus on this, but as you can see, absolutely beautiful garden. I mean, phenomenal. This one's actually in Canada. I don't know where in Canada, but it's a fantastic place. This garden, which you will now see, is my garden. As you can see, you know, it goes without saying I'm uh, I'm not a much of a gardener or a horticulturalist, but um, but really, you know, when we think about the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden makes the best garden in the world look like my garden. In fact, that's that's probably a compliment. You know, comparing the best garden that we have today with with the Garden of Eden. And that's just really a picture of, you know, how amazing this place was. We can't really do it justice. We can't imagine how amazing it really was. And we've talked about the blessings that God has given to man in that garden, but really the biggest blessing was God's presence in that garden. You see, God made that garden for man, but not just for man to live, he made it so that himself, God, could dwell with man in that place. There's this unity, there's this intimate relationship that is uh, fostered in this garden. And this is what Adam experienced. And although you know, we can know God truly in, a, in an intimate relationship today, we do look forward to the day where we see God face to face and dwell with him in that way that Adam did. Psalm 84 verse 10 says this, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. God's presence is the biggest blessing and and Pete mentioned earlier the verse from, from Psalm 27 saying, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple, you know that is what we are made to do—to dwell with God, to have a relationship with God. And what could be better than to dwell with our Creator? So that is the backdrop to this passage—the Garden of Eden, this paradise. But now let's return back to that question that I posed at the beginning: Now, what is man's purpose? And by man, I mean mankind, you know, humanity. What is man's purpose here? And what we'll see is that actually the purpose of man was the same then for Adam as it is today. The world has changed. And again, in chapter 3, in a couple of weeks, we will see how sin enters the world, this corruption enters the world. But our purpose has stayed completely the same. And again, I mentioned the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I'd love just to take uh, a look at three ways that God intended us to fulfill this purpose that we can see from this passage. And the first way is, it's just by enjoying God's gifts. You see, God gives good gifts. In the New Testament, it says He is a good Father and He knows how to give good gifts to His children. And Adam was created in that place and put in the Garden of Eden to enjoy the creation that God had given him. We've already explored some of those. But very quickly, we can actually miss the picture here because if we focus just on those gifts without God, we miss the point because God gave those gifts to Adam and he gives us gifts to be enjoyed but in relationship with him. And as soon as we just focus on those gifts and and divorce the gifts from the giver, we lose perspective and actually those things become meaningless. And they can be good things as well. They could be friends, they could be our work, they could be family. But if those become our sole purpose in life, without God, they become meaningless. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He does give us benefits. Every good thing that comes to us comes from the Father above, it says in in James. So that's the first thing, enjoying God's gifts. The second way that we can uh, fulfill our purpose in glorifying God and enjoying him is through work. Now, you might not have uh, expected us to be talking about work, you know, in paradise. You know, we might have this picture of paradise being just complete leisure, not doing anything, you know, watching movies, uh, sipping cocktails. You know, maybe Adam, you know, we could picture him just sitting in the garden and all the animals coming up and like serving him bits of food or whatever. But uh, actually, work was created before sin, sin entered the world. Is that actually a blessing to us? Work is a pre-fall blessing and not a result of sin. The nature of work has changed. I think we can see that. You know, Work is, uh, as we see it today, is, is often strenuous, difficult, unpleasant. But intrinsically, it is uh, a blessing and it gives us a lot of satisfaction when we do it. And God did not intend man just to sit around. He gave him this purpose of working the garden and keeping it. And notice how man exists to serve God, not the other way around. See, when we, when we imagine God you know, just being there uh, and existing to kind of serve us, again, we, we flip things around the way that they're meant to be. And we will actually will be most satisfied when we serve God and not see him as you know, some entity that just exists to, to make our lives easier. So work is good, and it was given to us, and, and through work we can fulfill uh, part of our purpose. Now the third aspect that we're going to look at here in terms of how we can fulfill our purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever, and perhaps the most important one that we're going to pick out today, is obedience. Again, as soon as I say that word obedience, you know, we might have negative connotations. You know, maybe as, as, a, as a kid, oh, you know, I have to just obey and do things I don't really want to do. But actually, obedience is a beautiful thing. And Adam was created in this garden, put there to obey God. And we see in verse 17 of, of chapter 2, now God warns man, he says, you know, eat whatever you want in the garden. Take any fruit, but do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of that fruit, you will die. And this is the first negative commandment. So the first commandment that to not do something that God gives. And all Adam had to do was just to not do that. Bruce Waltke talks about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says this, That famous tree symbolizes the ability to discern good, i.e. what advances life, from and evil, i.e. what hinders life. Such knowledge belongs to God alone. To disobey God would mean an explicit doubting of God's goodness and the truth of his word. You see, mankind had, be, had been created as a royal priesthood. This wasn't just a garden, this was a a temple. A temple is is where, you know, God and man can meet, and they can have, uh, man can experience the presence of God. And so man was was a priest within that temple to take care of the temple, to to, um, look after this garden. But this was all dependent on faith-filled obedience. On Adam's part. God gave him a command. He said, do not take of the fruit. And eventually Adam and Eve, they disobey God in that way. I don't know whether you guys have seen the, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a great film, big fan myself, and uh, the first film, it's called Black Pearl, and there's a character in that film called Barbosa. He's basically a, you know, a pirate. He's got a crew of, of, of pirates. And uh, basically what happens in that film is they take this gold. They search for it and there's an extremely valuable treasure chest full of gold. They take it and they spend it and they start maximizing their pleasure in, in every way possible, going around the world spending this, uh, this stuff. But soon they realize that the gold is cursed. And, and actually they start to lose the ability to experience pleasure, to experience any sense of joy. You know, when they eat, when they drink, they can't taste anything. He says, food turned to ash in our mouths. And he can't feel the warmth of, of affection from other humans or anything. And I think this is a picture of what disobedience is like. You know, often it looks so tempting to disobey God and, and, it, and it promises so much you know, to take of that fruit just as Adam did. But it always ends in disappointment. Yes, we can get, you know, short-term pleasure from those things, but it's not lasting and it's not God's intention for us. And so when we obey God, we experience his presence. And we demonstrate our love for God through our actions, through our obedience. Commandments are actually good things. They are to be a blessing to us. They protect us and they protect our intimacy with God. 1 John 5 says this, Loving God means keeping his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And that doesn't mean that uh, his commandments can sometimes be difficult to understand or even difficult to do sometimes. But as we grow in our relationship with God, these commandments become more and more of a delight, not a duty. And in John fourteen fifteen, actually Jesus says the same thing. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. And we express our love to God through our obedience. John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You see, glorifying God and enjoying Him, these things go together. They're not mutually exclusive. And actually, when we are fully satisfied in God and God alone, that is when we most glorify Him. So how do we know how to obey? You know, you might be thinking, okay, great, obedience is, is the way to, to glorify God through my life, but how do I know what that looks like? Well, this is the answer right here the Word of God. This is how we know how to obey. This is how we, uh, the principal way that we hear from God, He's revealed His Word to us. And it's such a privilege even to be able to have this book right here. I'm just reminded of people throughout the world who don't have the Bible. They don't have access to it, but we so freely have it. Psalm 119 says this about the Word. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the surest way of protecting intimacy with our, in our relationship with God and coming into his presence is through his word. Through reading it and meditating upon it and letting God speak to our hearts. So in closing, you know, we've talked about purpose, that our purpose is the same now as it was for Adam in that garden, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But the bad news is, you know, no matter what we do of our own initiative, no matter what we do by ourselves, we cannot get back to that garden. There's a barrier now between us and God. You see, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and, and we are the same. You know, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, of, of the glory of God. And there is a barrier between us and God because he is a holy God. He cannot dwell with sin. But the good news is that God himself provided a way for us to be reconciled to him to find our way back to that garden, back to that intimate picture of relationship with him. And he provided it himself. He provided it in the man, Jesus Christ, who was God, who came to earth as a man and lived a perfect life. And because he lived a perfect life, he was able to offer himself as the sacrifice on the cross. You see, a debt had to be paid for the the bad things, for the disobedience that we have all done, that that I have done. It had to be paid. And he paid it with his own blood after having lived that perfect life. And not only that, not only was he crucified, but he was risen again from the grave, defeating that power of sin and death so that we can be reconciled. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture? What is God asking you to be obedient in? Isn't I, even as I, I ask that, I just feel convicted about the ways, you know, I can walk in more obedience with God. Is God asking you to turn away from something? Is God asking you to turn to him? Is there a sin in your life that you're suppressing, that you know is there, that you know you need to deal with? I would encourage you not to wait, not to wait to deal with that, to be obedient to him, and to allow that restored intimacy in your life. But perhaps you don't know God, you, you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I would encourage you today Make that step of accepting his sacrifice that he made for you on that cross. He died for you. He knows you intimately. He loves you. And he wants you to know him and walk in that relationship. Philippians 2 verse 8 says this about Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was obedient to death, and he calls us to follow him into that obedience so that we would fulfill our purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever.